This is Ralph Carhart, the author of The Hall Ball, and you are listening to Baseball and Barbecue. Episode number 76 of Baseball and Barbecue. I am joined by the co-host I am extremely thankful to have, Jeff Cohen. Thank you, Leonard. How are you? Good. That's me. I'm Leonard Aberman. Jeff, can I just say one thing right now? Sure. This is being released two days after Thanksgiving. Just want everybody to know how thankful we are for all of our listeners, for all of our guests. We could not do this show without you. Well, I guess we could do it without them, but, well, you know, but it would be pretty boring, and <laughs> so uh, we're thankful for all of them. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Leonard. Very, very nice. We've got a great show. We've got Tim Razor, who talks cutting boards, and that might sound like cutting boards, but when you hear Tim Razor, just an incredible life. You will really enjoy his... Very passionate and a veteran, and we thank him for his service. Yes. Fifthandcherry.com, cutting boards. We've got Jim Overmeyer, who wrote an incredible book on Cumberland Posey, and his wonderful contributions to sports and the Negro Leagues baseball. Without further delay, let's get right to Tim Razor. Fine cooking tools are an essential part of a kitchen. High-quality kitchen tools are often found on the countertops of some of the greatest chefs in the world, as well as anyone who truly appreciates their beauty and the way in which they make food preparation easier. Our guest company makes cutting boards that are truly works of art and which all barbecue cooks of any level can appreciate and want to pass on to future grill masters. Fifth and Cherry makes incredible cutting boards, and we are thrilled to welcome its founder, Tim Razor, to baseball and barbecue. Welcome, Tim. Well, welcome, fellas. I, it's a warm, nice, kind words that have never been spoken about me when <laughs> someone has been bringing me on to introduce me. So thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Your story, which let, let me just tell everyone how, how, I, how we found you. Sometimes, you know, you get, you get lucky. And we, you had a, an ad running on Facebook. And I happened to click on it. When I saw the company, the product that you have, these beautiful cutting boards, I was amazed. And I thought that's, that is perfect for our listeners because a lot of times we'll get asked, you know, where, where can I get these good, quali- you know, good quality products? We have a lot of uh, companies on that we, we only will have anyone on that we, you know, we believe in. So mm-hmm. when I saw those products, 
and I read a little of your story. I thought that was incredible. You got back to us right away. And then you and I were speaking the other day. And when people hear your story, they're, they're really going to be impressed by you. Forget the cutting boards. <laughs> oh, I, I appreciate okay. that. Anybody who wants to talk cutting boards, I mean, if you picked all the topics in the world to which you could talk about anything at length about, and someone emails you and says, hey, I want to talk about cutting boards, you jump on that opportunity right away. <laughs> I, I, it is, it, it's really hard to work in uh, cutting boards. Like, you can't be on a first date and going, hey, what do you think of the movie? By the way, have you seen my cutting board? And so it... It gets it gets a little tricky. So when when fellas want to talk cutting boards, I'm all ga- I'm all I'm game for it all day all night. Well, Tim, first tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So uh, I don't come to the cutting board industry, which sounds you know the cutting board industry. As a side note, is 131 million dollars right a year. It's a 131 million dollar a year industry, which sounds like a lot. And I'm and I'm in uh, my MBA classes. I'll tell you how I came to it in a second. But I didn't realize there was a cutting board industry. I like they they classified in uh, the government actually has classification systems for it, and they classified the cutting board industry. It's 131 million dollars. And I'm standing you, like you guys have seen the website at fifthandcherry.com, and it comes across to you as a gift, right? Like when you look, you get the sense that this product is meant to be given as a gift. Well, that didn't just happen by circumstance. So, what, so I'm in an MBA class and I'm up there uh, presenting my idea. Like, hey, I want, by the way, you want to be a, you want to feel like a loner. Tell, tell the world in the age of digitalization, you want to sell wooden blocks, you know? And so <laughs> uh, I, I show them the fifth and cherry, you know, uh, my cutting board and no one's seen anything like it. They haven't felt anything like it. And then the uh, the entrepreneur that's leading the class looks at me and he says, son, that's not a cutting board. That's a gift. Go figure it out. And uh, the guy's name is Jackie Kimsey. And Jackie's a mentor of mine. And Jackie set me on a course where I then realized that the gifting industry is $131 billion a year. And the average American, not not family, but American, Adult American gives and gifts $2,500 a year per person. And I thought, oh, I absolutely think I can, I can figure this out. I think, I think that I know where I'm headed with this. And so we, our biggest two buying components uh, now are they're, they're pit masters by far and gift givers. And so it's been an amazing journey. And so when you're saying, how did I get started in this? Well, we make kitchens. Jeff, you asked the question, I think on email, like how long have you been in business? And it's complicated. And I don't think I answered your question. I think I probably complicated it more when I said, we've been doing this from 80, since 1982. And I can see Leonard's look when he says to me, well, you look so young and handsome. And I... <laughs> you read my mind, Tim. Yes. And so um, what happened is I grew up in the kitchen industry. And so uh, we manufacture kitchens, Razor's Custom Woodworking, and my father's been doing it since he got out of the Marine Corps in 68, started sweeping the floors at a place called Pioneer. And then fast forward to 82, he opens his own shop, uh, small on the second floor of a historic building in Reading. And we just it just grows exponentially through the 80s. Well, I grew up sweeping the floors there. And so I, like most kids who grew up in a small town, I grew up in a town with one stoplight. I mean, I loved it, but I mean, I wanted to go see the world. And so I went to school and then I went right into the Marine Corps after school. And so 
learned, uh, then I eventually went, I went to flight school and uh, I flew helicopters in the Marine Corps for about 10 years. And so, man, I got a good story. I, I selected my airframe. You fellas are from New York. So I selected my airframe. I flew the helicopter with two rotors on it. I selected that airframe on September the 11th, 2001. So on the day. Wow. And so, yeah, it was, it was really touch and go there. Like, you know, once everything started happening, my parents were in, were, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. So my parents were already in the sky flying down to see me get winged as a naval aviator. And I couldn't find them for 12 hours. Hmm. So, oh my gosh, my, my heart was aching for 12 hours, wondering what had happened. Cause it was before texting where, I mean, a lot of people that are, that are maybe my, well, my age, they know, but younger, like, what do you mean? Why did they just text you, you know, from the sky or whatever? And so, no, no, it didn't work like that. You know, they had no communication ability. They had a cell phone. And so they, the, the pilot put the plane down in Charlotte, North Carolina. They drove to Pensacola and found me. And so, um, so I did the Marine Corps, did three deployments to Iraq. And I had one of the cutting boards that used the, just like what you see on the website, it was actually a 14 uh, the 14 inch cutting board, we make three standard sizes at fifth and cherry, a 14 by 14 and 18 by 18. And a, and, and a standard size for us is a 36 by 18 by three inches. And so I had one for years and it was so beautiful. I was like everybody else that buys our boards at first. They, uh, they don't want to cut on it. it. It's, it's too beautiful. And, and I know you can't feel it, but like I, I've got one right here. And so I don't, it's hard to see with the lights and the video, and I know this is audio, but the finish on this, it, it, the way it's hand sanded and then finished with the fibers getting knocked down about anywhere from seven to 10 times, it feels three-dimensional. And so people can't believe that this is a cutting board. And so I, I thought, you know, I think there's a business in here because the, the kitchen company uh, that my mother and father created never sold cutting boards. We were making them with the scraps of wood left over from the kitchens and giving them to the customers. Mm. And so when it's all custom, it's not, it's not stock. It, and so it, it really personal gift. And I thought, I think there's a business in here. And I, and if you know anything about, if anyone listening knows anything about the kitchen industry, it's very regional. Like if you want stock, and I don't, I don't want to use adjectives, but I, the first word that came to my mind was junk. But if you want stock, kitchens that are sold in Home Depot or Lowe's, like those, those are just standard sizes. And quite frankly, there's nothing really special about them. But when, you, when you're creating a custom kitchen, shipping adds X amount to the price. And so it, it really is a regional business. And so uh, most people outside of maybe 11, you know, 11 states on the East Coast never had an RCW kitchen. And so I thought, I think there's a business with just cutting boards. And then I can figure out how to do custom kitchens nationwide uh, after I got fifth and what would become fifth and cherry into people's homes. And so I had the board, uh, I got out of school and very circuitous route to get to this point in the journey. So my, after my third deployment to uh, Iraq, I got back on Thanksgiving Eve, if that's a day on uh, in 2007. And there's a gentleman who uh, owns a newspaper called Investors Business Daily. And I wrote to him. So in, in, in Iraq, I would, on the uh, non-secret internet, I would download Investors Business Daily and share it with the young Marines. And uh, this is that 2003 to 2007 timeframe 
when if you bought some Apple stock, you're doing really well today, right? Well, the young Marines, uh, I've always loved the fact that you could, you know, I used to sweep floors at the shop, you know, it's hot, it's work, you know, like I was a laborer, you know? And so I'm thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be great one day if I could make money with my mind? So I was fascinated with the stock market. So I started reading and learning from Investors Business Daily. And so I had a love of that as I matured into uh, a young adult. And so when I went to the Marine Corps, I was amazed at what the young Marines were spending money on. And so you had kids in, in the war buying rims for cars that they might never see, you know? And uh, I thought, well, what, maybe we can do something about this. So I'd help them uh, maybe clean up their credit. You know, there's only so many hours of the day you can fly during the war, 12 on, 12 off. And so in the off time, I would, I would just work with the Marines. And so got them involved in the stock market. So, uh, but in the pages of IBD, uh, if anyone remembers the O, especially the O five to O seven timeframe, the people back home, a certain group, started turning on the Marine Corps, and uh, William O'Neill, the owner of the newspaper, started writing uh, very positive, truthful articles about the Marine Corps in this time during the war, and that that meant a lot to me. I used to listen to um, I used to listen to Harry Callis on. Uh, on the internet, uh, on, on you know, because it was twelve, it was twelve hour time difference. So I used to listen to baseball, and then I got to read uh, at least some good stuff uh, about about the Marine Corps. Like you're over there, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe people think this back home. And so, here's a guy who takes pages out of his newspaper, doesn't sell advertising on it, and is writing positively about the Marine Corps and the service people over there. So I wrote him a letter when I got back, and uh, from there, he I met him. Uh, he called me. He called me like a month later after he read my letter. And he said, you should come meet me. And so I said, okay. And so uh, I went up and met him because of the Marine Corps. When your contract ends, they don't just send you home from the war. You finish out your tour of duty and then you come home and then you figure it out. Well, I was in between. I was the, uh, one of the youngest captains that was selected for major that, that cycle. And it's just how, how it happened to work out. And I was getting ready to head up to, of all places, Fargo, North Dakota, to take command of a post up there. And I got this call from someone uh, named Bill O'Neill. And so Bill said, you should come meet me. And from there, we talked for three hours a week later. And from there, he said, what do you think? I said, about what? He said, well, do you want to come work for me? And I said, I don't know. And so after that, he, after a few uh, back and forth, he said, well, listen, it's six o'clock. How about we talk at 6 a.m. tomorrow and you tell me what you want to do? And I thought, great. You know, that 12 hours seems like enough time to make a life-changing decision. And so <laughs> I took it and it altered the course of my life forever in the most positive way possible. From there, I was able to uh, eventually end up in Texas, where I live now, just through uh, working in the stock market and everything about investing. And from there, I was saving desperately uh, all the money I possibly could, making money in the stock market, so I could one day create. I've always had the idea that I wanted to create Fifth and Cherry, except I didn't know how. And someone would say, well, what do you mean you don't know how with YouTube and all these other things? Well, listen, there's also such a thing as too much information. And so I thought, you know what, I've been living a pretty solitary life with the stock market. Even though I was meeting, like I was speaking about 30 or 40,000 people a year. It just, it, I just had no idea how to do anything. And so I put myself through school. I uh, got my MBA specifically so I could figure out, and uh, the school I went to, the University of Texas here in Dallas, has this wonderful Blackstone uh, sponsors, the Entrepreneurial Center at UTD. So I went there just so I could figure out what I didn't know. And it turns out a lot. And uh, I met some wonderful people. And so launched Fifth and Cherry in 2019. 
And so we incorporated, we, well, LLC was formed in 2018, launched it in 2019. That was a long winding story of how I got here. And I apologize. <laughs> no, no need to apologize. I, and I think I speak for Lane when I say thank you for your service. Yes. Uh, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. Serving your country. Thank you. I needed the Marine Corps. Like I, I, I wasn't rambunctious or a bad kid, but I just, I needed the Marine Corps to focus me. And that attention to detail you learn there is absolutely invaluable to somebody like me. And so it, and it carries over. Like you, you can see it in what we're doing with Fifth and Cherry from the boards, from the website design. And so when, when we launched, I didn't know, you know, like that whole thing, you don't know what you don't know. I do you guys have heirloom cutting boards? Do, do either of you have uh, old cutting boards? No. Well, we have old cutting boards, but they're not heirlooms. They're just my wife's parents had them, and they're kind of they're falling apart. But you know, <laughs> it's, it's, so, <laughs> and I want to apologize if I've destroyed some kind of question list that you guys might have because I'm jumping around. Just, okay. uh, just know it's not on purpose. It's just it's just where my mind goes when I'm talking about cutting boards and you say how did you do this? Well, the just little nuances of like the uh, the for, the finish, refinishing your board forever free of charge. So like we we don't if you have one of our cutting boards, it doesn't matter if you if you bought it, you were gifted it. If for some reason you picked it up at a yard sale, it, it doesn't matter. If you have one of my cutting boards, I'm going to refinish it forever free of charge. And that came about because I ruined my wife's cutting board, Tanya, my business partner and all this. She went, we were getting married. We're getting ready to get married. She was going to a bridal shower. So I was doing a little cooking and I put her dishwasher, I, I put her dish, I put her cutting board, uh, her grandmother's heirloom. It was a long grain board, a uh, maple cutting board in the dishwasher because it smelled like onions. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know how to get this out. I'm trying soap and water. I'm going to put it in the dishwasher. So the next day I walk out and it comes off in three pieces. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and so I thought, son of a, she's going to, she is not going to be happy with me here. And so I taped it up. I took it back to Pennsylvania. I was going back to get the suits for my groomsmen. And on the plane ride is where I realized, wait a minute, I think if this turns out, okay, we should refinish the cutting boards. And so like two weeks eclipse and the board finally makes its way back to me. And Tanya didn't even know it was gone this whole time. And I said, Tanya, you're never going to believe what's in this box. Look at this. And it was better than new. Like it was better than when it was, it was sent out. I said, this thing's, this thing's better than when it went away. It's going to last forever. I said, we should do this with the cutting boards. This is our business model innovation right here. And so, and I figured too, that if uh, I'm a romantic, whereas, which you don't hear many Marines say, but I am like, I care because I know how fragile life is. And so uh, I have a really cute awareness of it. And I thought, gosh, the only thing that's tangible left in this world is the memories you make with people. And like when you cook and when you barbecue or whatever you do, like smell is one of the most tangible things. You walk into a room and you're like, oh my gosh, it smells just like when my mom was baking bread or when my dad was firing up the barbecue. Like you, know, you there's a certain essence to the air and it takes you like right back. And so I thought, geez, what a way, like when I, when you pull out something of your, of, of your, in my mind, it's my mother, but if you pull out something from your loved ones, it, it can transport you right back in time. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be something if we could just keep these boards going forever and they're handed down. And so uh, like on, I don't know if y'all saw it, like on the front, I, this is a horrible way to do this. And I apologize for that. That's like there's a serial number on every one of our boards. 
And so that serialization is, it's like, how would you know what you're bored? And so like, and we didn't, we hadn't started personalizing them yet. And I thought, what if we just serialized them in a way that let people, that if they ever wanted to know the history, like where the wood came from, when was it made? Like who made it? Like who in the shop crafted it? And then like, and, and you can think like, if I gave it to my daughter and my daughter then gives it to her kids and then her kids, like that's lineage. And then like every turkey that's ever been carved on a board, you know, can always be told like that first Thanksgiving turkey. And that story can be told forever. Right, so, right. Yeah. And so it's, it's been a journey, but I'm, it, it feels good to be here. And it feels good that you, I thank you for recognizing our work too. I, I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. You know, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, and this might be the question Lane was going to ask you, how did you come up with the name Fifth and Cherry? Great, great question. So struggled. And I didn't come up with it. One of my great friends in the MBA program, Russell, came up with it. Uh, we were, Reading is, uh, is a square city, right? And so the back, so where the shop is located, it's on, it's, it's one of the corners is Fourth Street and the other street's Cherry. And so I wanted, I was like, we should call it Fourth and Cherry. That, that's, the, you know, but that took like months to figure out, right? And, and then, the, believe it or not, the, the back entrance to the shop is on Carpenter Street, just random. And so that name is taken by a strip mall in Georgia. And so F-O-R-T-H spelled out. And I'm like, well, let's just go F-O-U-R-T-H, like go forth, young man. And so then, I, then we toyed around. People will get confused and they'll keep going to a strip mall and never find us. And so... One day, Russell just looks and goes, what's the other street that it's near? I'm like, well, Fifth. He goes, that sounds good too. And so we started toying with it. And as it turns out, the gift you give on your fifth wedding anniversary is the gift of wood. Nice. And then, of course, Cherry Street is the, uh, is the cross street where the shop is. And then we only make cherry. Like, I don't make another board out of another wood type. I only will endeavor in cherry. And there's specific reasons. There's science behind that. So if you, do you guys know how wood, is, wood hardness is measured? It's, it's the most ridiculous measurement you've ever heard of. It's called Janka, J-A-N-K-A. And so like you take a steel cylinder ball, drop it from about five feet, and the dent that it makes is how you measure the hardness of wood. The Janka hardness rating that you want to stay away from is anything above 1,000. The score is like from zero to a gazillion. And so you can, the best cutting boards, the best wood cutting surfaces live in a Janka rating of 900 to 1,000. Anything over 1,000, think walnut, think oak, think teak, which sometimes can be toxic. It's too hard. And so when you're using your knife blade, you're actually going to start rolling your knife blade. And then if you go under 900, you start getting into the acacias of the world. Down here in Texas, they're big on gum tree, which is garbage wood. And then of course, you've got plastics. And so like if you, everybody has this board, I've got this board, this plastic cutting board that it looks like a murder scene where you can't get that spot clean. And, and oh, yeah. That's, yeah. And, and so it doesn't matter if you put in the dishwasher, you scrub it, that spot is actually stained bacteria and it's, it's, it's dirty. <laughs> and so even though you've done everything you can to it, so what happens on the softer surfaces, you're actually letting water and bacteria in that you can't get clean. Now, on the harder surfaces, you're like, well, you can solve that problem, of course, with glass or granite, but you're ruining your knife blade. And then the other part is you're actually ruining the knife blade on the softer surfaces, too, because you've got to press down harder because you're pressing into the board. And so you want to stick to cherry and maple 
when it comes to cutting surfaces, if you're going to use wood, if you're going to use wood, I, I, I tell everybody, please use end grain because end grain is naturally antimicrobial. Not that is, that is a little known fact that most people don't know about end grain wood. And so, and you're cutting not only on the strongest part of the wood, you're cutting on the part that acts like a zipper. So when you make a two and four motion with your knife stroke, it actually, it just like a zipper, it opens up and then it closes. It's just the natural healing of the wood. And so like with our boards, you can knife mark them. You will never knife groove them. I mean, you, I've got people that have cut in barbecue competitions and, bar, and the World Food Championships last year. They sliced 800 pounds of meat in three days on, on my 18-inch board. And they, could, they, they couldn't feel anything on it. And their knives were just as sharp as when they started. You want to stick to those. And when you're using long grain, you're, it's like bamboo is like bamboo is a grass. But when you're imagine cutting a, uh, like a, if you grab spaghetti with one hand in your fist and then you sliced across it, that's long grain. And you're actually cutting the wrong, you're cutting on the wrong fibers of the wood when you cut on a long grain board, which is what most boards are. Now, Tim, on your, on your website, I've got two for you. You've got a video. It's a short video, but it shows how the cutting board is made. Mm-hmm. There's actually one part in it where on the side of the board in pencil, it's written art. And I thought, I'm like, did they put that in there specifically? But I think that a, a beautiful cutting board is, is a work of art well, thank to you. have out in your kitchen. Something like your board should not be stuck in a, in a drawer. It should be out on a, on a, on a counter or, uh, you know, because a cutting board, you, I mean, when you're cutting your vegetables, whatever, and it, it's always out. You're always using it. It's, it's one of the most overlooked things in the kitchen. And then uh, the people that come up to us, so we, we meet, well, COVID, well, we still meet them. We just meet them digitally now, off times, uh, because of uh, the COVID environment. But the thing that we hear most is, I have a cutting board that's end grain. And, and the next phrase is, but it's stuck away because, and I say, is it cracked? And they're like, yeah, it cracked. And so the reason why our boards can be left out uh, the way you described is because they won't ever warp and they won't crack. And it's the way, I'm sorry, I'm going to do this. And I know that people are going to see this on the video, but I'll show you fellas. So uh, here's a cross section of one of our boards. And so all of our wood, and you can see it in the video on uh, the About Us page of Fifth and Cherry. So right. every, every piece is hand arranged. And so there's no two boards alike. So they're like snowflakes in the most positive way. And so you, you, that hand arranging, you're putting a puzzle together. So all the, all the joints are fitting tight. And so, and then it's hand glued. And then, so mass produced boards, someone might say, well, aren't all boards hand glued? No, there, it's a radio frequency gluing that's done by a lot of people. And that radio frequency gluing doesn't cover the entire surface. So over time, as the, as the wood, you know, expands and contracts and moisture comes in contact with it, it's living still. And so th- where it doesn't have that adhesive, it starts to break away and then, there's another facet to this. And I don't know if you fellas will be able to see that. There's a steel pin that runs through every layer of end grain cherry. It's not just one long steel pin. It's multiple, multiple steel pins, depending upon the 14, the 18, or the 36. And so what you end up with is a board that will n- never separate. And it, and it just won't work. It's got this, it's got this, it's almost rebarb and concrete is the probably the wrong way to describe it but it's the only thing that's coming to my mind right now and it's better than air bit like people will put like these uh, these biscuits like you might like you might connect two pieces of wood together through a biscuit it's better than a biscuiting system and we're the only ones in the world to do it 
which is crazy. Like at scale, we're the only ones to hand arrange, hand glue still, and then do the steel pinning and then refinish them for free. There's nobody that does this. And so that's, that's the business model innovation right there. The board's, they can purchase it directly through you. Yeah, we have, we have uh, if you go online, we have, we have a dealer uh, in New York. Uh, we have, we have about 22, 25 dealers on our website that sell fifth and cherry products across the country. Uh, but you can come right to us uh, at fifthandcherry.com and purchase directly. Super, super easy process. We, uh, we ship, we have a supply that we keep on hand. Uh, the only COVID has been really interesting for us. I don't, I've listened to a few of your shows and I want to get to, by the way, the guy, the fellow you had on in February, the uh, baseball card, addicted to baseball cards. Tanner Jones. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't listened to that one yet. That's the one I want to get to because COVID is, and that happened right before the big shutdown where you can't find baseball cards on the shelves at Target or Walmart anymore. Like they're, and if anyone who follows, I'm into sports cards. Uh, I love sports cards. And so anyone who follows the rise of sports cards in 2020 knows like that guy's world changed. Like he, he was <laughs> on your show. You should have him back. I would be curious to see the follow-up to I'm addicted to sports cards. <laughs> so uh, COVID has changed a lot of things. And so in March, our site traffic spiked uh, 25,000%. Wow. And yeah. It, and I, I, I said to Tanya one night, I said, have you been, have you been keeping, you know, seeing what's going on here? And she's like, what do you mean? Like our site is up 25,000% so far this month. And she said, you're kidding me. And I said, no. And then, so uh, our shop had to shut down. Like it, it's like, oh my gosh, people are flocking to us. And, you know, we had to shut down production and, um, and it, you know, it, the, Whatever we could do to keep, I mean, the guys are like family. So the the African uh, African American gentleman that's in the video that that that's Alfred. I've known Alfred since I was in second grade, maybe first grade. Like Alfred taught me how to make the boards. Like everyone at the shop has this long tenure, and I pretty much grew up with them. And so it like they're family, and so like you just want to keep people safe in any way possible, and so. It was the right thing to do, but it's like, oh my gosh, people are just now discovering our brand, Fifth and Cherry, and and what we represent, and we had to shut down, and so it was fine. We had enough supply. We Tiny and I are, uh, we're like, well, we're not going anywhere. So let's just keep let's keep writing, let's keep engaging, and then coming out of it, uh, this has been in a, in a in a in a year filled with strife for so many people. For us, it's been a lot of work, but it's been amazing. And like it, like not a not a moment of it is lost on us. Like we're just grateful. Like like that that you like you found us through an ad. Do you know how many people just look at a Facebook ad and just just you know? And the other like our Facebook ads, I I am shocked at how many people comment on our Facebook ads. Like the, I I've never commented on an ad in my life. Like it's an ad. <laughs> it's an ad. Like like it, it. I guess in 2020, it's the it's the version of yelling at the TV. You know, like you're just you're just talking back to the TV, and <sighs> we we get so much feedback. Like I, I can't begin to tell you. Like I would love to. I'd love to tell you guys that we launched Fifth and Cherry. Like we opened our digital store in April of 2019, and I would love to tell you that we opened the store. And we sold out right away. We can't keep them in stock. It's the exact opposite. We couldn't sell a board. And, and nobody, I mean, nobody, like we're talking crickets. We had tremendous site traffic. 
we had launched our ads and nobody bought a board. And I'm like, what did I do? Like what, what mistake did I make? And it, and so the first iteration of the website was just my emotional appeal to people that don't you want to keep carrying on and don't you want nobody got what i was trying to convey and it wasn't their fault it was my fault like they didn't understand the value proposition that i'm creating something that you have to, that you only have to buy once it lasts forever and it's going to be refinished free of charge forever like the, that whole forever mentality is so different right now in today's disposable society and right. so the facebook ads though like the feedback by the way was so negative at first on the Facebook ads. Like it was, how dare you charge this? Who are you? You know, like, and and I'm giving you the mild stuff. Like there were, there were, I'm like, Tanya, who are these angry people yelling at Facebook? Like it, it just, it took me by surprise. And then after I got done being hurt for a little bit, like, why don't they get what I'm trying to do? You know, I started categorizing all of the criticisms. I found the constructive ones. And then I realized, oh my gosh, it's the value proposition that the people, it's not their fault. It's my fault that I'm not articulating what we're trying to accomplish that I want to be, that I'm not selling you a product. I'm a brand. And that fifth and cherry represents the word forever. And that like we had a board, we've only had one board returned for one, one, no, no, two, excuse me, two boards returned for refunds. Out of all the boards that we've sold, like I can tell you all the boards that we have out in the wild because we serialize them and I know their journey. But we've had two boards. The first one was because this gentleman was giving it to his fiance as a gift. As it turns out, she said no to the proposal. And so... Well, if he used a board to propose, I mean, look, your boards are beautiful, Tim, but <laughs> I think she wanted a ring. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think she got a ring. I think it was for the home they were moving into. <laughs> and so as it turns out, he wrote to us and uh, he said, can I return it? And Tanya said, of course you can. And so it was never used. And so he wrote a note. He put a note in the box. That note is actually up on our website and our blog. And okay. so... Yeah. And so um, we made it a, like that's the, that, that time. And then there was, there was a couple here locally in Dallas that bought one of our boards. And the first time they set it on fire and uh, on their gas stove and didn't tell me, they just said, Hey, you're the, the board is, is it wasn't cracking. It was, it had marks on it that wouldn't come out is how it was described to me. So I drive over and I, and I just meet them somewhere and I say, I'll, I'll just exchange your boards. No, no big deal. I said, I'd, I thought I had a production issue. Like I thought, oh my gosh, what, what has happened? Like I got to get this board back. I got to examine it. I, I open the box, I flip it over and there's these burn marks. I'm like, and so I think the wife ended up putting the board a second time in the oven. And then he goes, I just want, I just want my money back. And I thought, you got it. Yeah. And so I took it, took it back. Wow. It's oh, wood, wood burn. Wood, wood burn. <laughs> wood, fire. Birds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's the, the only two boards I've ever, uh, I've ever had to return. I'm quite sure as we grow and we get bigger, there'll be other uh, wood burning episodes, but yeah, it's been an amazing journey. <laughs> wow. You know, I, I once, uh, I like to make cedar plank salmon. Mm. The whole thing with cedar plank salmon is, you know, you soak the board and then I put it over the fire a little bit to get a little of the moisture out and get it to start to smoke. And mm-hmm. I put the salmon on 
one time I was in a hurry and I, because if you put a fire on underneath it, a low fire, it'll cook a little faster. Problem was I put a fire on underneath it. I closed the lid. I forgot it was on there until I saw my grill. And Jeff, I don't know if I ever told you this one. This is another barbecue confession, but there was smoke coming out. Why is it smoking so much? And I opened the lid and there's a big piece of salmon on the board and it's just on fire. So wood burns. Yeah, that's that's the thought. You know, in the boards, it's interesting. Like we did the world, we sponsored the World Food Championships in 2019. And we were, we were doing the same thing in 2020, but they can't, they had to cancel them for COVID. It was such a big deal for us to be able to sponsor these. So we sponsored all the chefs uh, that were competing. The boards were on the stations. And so uh, every morning I'm getting there like five, and, five in the morning, 530. And I'm just looking at the boards because I don't, want our boards to look bad. I want to make sure that everything is, and they were holding up beautifully. And then Friday morning or Saturday morning, Tanya comes over and she says, have you seen the boards? And I said, what do you mean? I I just saw them this morning. They look great. She goes, no, no, they're running them through the dishwasher. I said, what? And so you got to think there's like 50 boards at, at all the stations. And she said, yeah, they're putting them through the dishwasher. They've been doing it since Wednesday. And so from Wednesday to Saturday, for 10 rounds a day, they were running these boards through an industrial dishwasher. And I thought, first my heart sank. And I looked at her and I go, well, how are the boards? And she goes, well, they're fine. And I thought, oh, that's right. I just checked them too. They're fine. I said, that actually became, I took a, we took a picture of it after uh, the event. And that blog post became an ad. That ad became uh, a LinkedIn post. And that actually became our most popular piece of marketing ever. The boards that survived all those rounds through an industrial dishwasher to the point where we could, people who uh, had competed saw the blog post. We sold all but one of those boards. They wanted, they wanted the boards that went through the, that they competed with. And so they were like, sure, well, let's, let's, let's refinish them. Let's bring them back to new. And then, uh, then you're more than welcome to have them. Nice. Well, our, our guest is Tim Razor. If you haven't seen the boards, uh, seen their product, it's Fifth and Cherry. Uh, what is it? Fifthandcherry.com. Yep. Spelled right. out. Yep. And Tim, do you have any uh, plans? I mean, I guess one of the things that I probably teach is, you know, you do something, do it well, keep doing that one thing. But are you planning on expanding to any other product? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to... I think that brand is the most important thing than product. I think like if you had a product, I don't think product is important. I think brand is. And so, because the brand is what represents you when you're not in the home, you know, or when you're not around. And so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to create kitchens eventually. And so like getting back to the roots of the business. And so, you know, it's interesting, like Tony and I, we had a scrape together to start Fifth and Cherry. Like it wasn't, we stepped into something and no, no, nothing existed. And uh, there was no digitalization of, of how to, selling cutting boards online isn't like, if you look at some of our competitors, they don't really do it because they're using a 19, a, a 20th century model of hub and spoke and distributors and stores. And so Tony and I built this from scratch and what we're going to do, what we're doing for cutting boards right now, we're going to do for kitchens. And so when you get a fifth and cherry kitchen, it's going to be designed to your home, not, not the other way around where your home has to fit, you know, the kitchen has to, it has to fit and whatever, you know, whatever you get, you get, which is stock. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the same approach with 
the cutting boards. I'm going to do with drawer fronts and doors. I'm going to refinish the kitchen for free forever. And so, and, and that's what I want. Like as I grow fifth and cherry, I need people to understand that what that represents. And so when they say the words fifth and cherry, I want them to think of they're going to be treated better than they've ever been treated before by a company. You know, if you ch- do you guys shop at Costco, you, you just, yeah. And you just right. take something back. It, they don't, there's no hassle. If it didn't yep. work out or it didn't meet your standards, whatever your standards are, you just take it back. And it's like, Hey, no, I want that level of satisfaction. And that's, that's what we go for. And I don't, I don't hassle people about things because I, I believe in the greater good. I believe that people are, are, are good in their hearts. And I believe that they want the same things I want, which is, uh, to be connected by family and feel love and warmth in the things that they use every day and the people that surround them. And so I can do that with kitchens because kitchens, I mean, you kitchens are where everything happens, right? Like when you, like you have your family meetings, it, it's the first place you go. Like you make a cup of coffee in the morning, you know, like after you leave the bedroom, you go to the kitchen. It's where you greet the kids. It's where life happens. And so if I can keep your kitchen looking as brand new as the day you, that you purchased it, that's going to increase the value and quality of your life. And when you're ready to sell your home, it's going to keep the value of your home as the kitchen is typically the most valuable room in the home. And so um, with technology, my, my brother says, Tim, how are you going to refinish doors and drawer fronts when, when fading happens, sunlight, you know, ultraviolet light fades? And I said, technology is so great right now that you, we, we can match any finish. You know, like when you take a when you take a magazine to your paint store, whether no matter where it is, they just say, "Oh yeah, we can recreate that," mm-hmm. and they do, and it, and it's it's just recreated right there. We're at that level of technology and finishes, and so it it doesn't matter when you bought your kitchen, and that that stems back to my my father was doing that. We have kitchens out in the wild now since '82, and they'll send him the doors and drawer fronts and say, can you, can you make them new again? And we just do it for free. So I'm really just expanding upon something that he's been doing in a, on a regional basis, but I'm going to do it nationally. And that's good. That's going to take time, but kitchens are absolutely kitchens and there's going to be a table eventually, <laughs> but uh, I'm hyper-focused. Like if I can't get my cutting board into your home, if I can't explain to you why forever is important in this regard, then I don't have a shot with any other product. And so I, I'll tell you, when the story started merging of the cutting boards, get like you, you fellas, we don't have an unboxing video on the site, but there's a letter that we include in the box. So when you open up our packaging, our packaging is really special to us. It, it took the longest time to develop. And so when you open up our box, we have videos of people crying when they read this letter. Really? Yeah. And, and so the letter, it was probably, it took forever to write. It took forever to convey my thoughts, but it, I don't know how to be another way than to just be human and to just exp- live my values. And the letter conveys the thoughts of love and what this means. So when you, you don't know what's in the box, but when you open the box, because the box is stately in its own right, and it took forever to develop because we're, no two boards are alike, right? And we make three standard sizes. We're asking artisans to create a board in the same manner when, when it lo- wood's a living product and, and, and you can't, it's so hard to control. And we're talking one sixty-fourth of an inch down, you know, down to the, to the nanometer to fit in this box. Because when you pull a, a satin tab, the board pops up and then it's the whole experience. And so, yeah, people cry at this letter because 
they understand that the person who gave it to them, what it, what it means. And so if I can't get to that level with our consumer base, the kitchens will never come, you know? And so I'm, I'm really hyper-focused on just developing a customer base that wants to do things that I'm doing and do them together and grow together. And, and we, we talk to our customers all day, every day. Let me, uh, let me ask you, because you mentioned family heirlooms before, and it's to be handed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. I, looking on your website, you can personalize it. You can put anything on, uh, engrave anything on the board. Yeah, you want to yeah. tell us a little more about that and how that journey is? That, that was, that, yeah, that, that might sound really simple to, to the layperson, and it's not. The way our boards are constructed, so every every layer of end grain is, is hand arranged. And then the board's too thick for stand. It's too much wood. It's too much heft to fit into an engraver. And so what we do is uh, we need a special engraver. It's a machine that's designed to engrave at a depth that's set for us that will allow us to refinish that board forever. And so we don't engrave on the top because that violates the integrity of the wood. Like, you, you know, there's no feet on the, bo- on the board whatsoever. Anytime you drill into that p- board, you're then allowing uh, the opportunity for, wood and, for water and bacteria to get in there. And that's something that I'm completely against. Like, that's the only things that we won't do. We won't, buy, we won't ruin the board. So we only engrave on the side. One blank, one end grain piece of cherry is sent to our engraver. Our engraver then gets the, gets the personalization and I was against it. Like, if I'm being honest with you, I started out with, I am anti-personalization. Like 2018, Tim Razor was, no, I'll never, why would I want to put someone's name on my board? Like, it's going to ruin it. Like, I, I, I was so wrong. I can't begin to tell you how wrong I was. And I was wrong because I, I fought it because I didn't have a process for it. Like it was hard enough to get our engraving and then get it back to the shop and then get the board put together because we make the boards to about a ninety percent solution. The, the the serialization comes back with the with the fifth and cherry logo. It's attached and then the the finishing process commences. And that was a process. Like just you can build one of something, but when you're trying to build a lot of something but everyone is individual and everyone is handcrafted. And, and oh, by the way, it's got to be into the standard and tolerance. It, it takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of time. And so there was the World Food Championship winners from 2019. Uh, Josh and Gannon Cooper approached me at the championships and they saw my 36 inch board. They said, would you put our name on it? And I said, no. I, I, and then they said, why not? And I explained, I don't have a process for it. I would love to. But I can't just throw this board into a machine. I said, I, I don't have the ability to do it. They were so kind. Like these are the, I think like, I don't know if you believe in divine intervention. I believe that, I mean, after three deployments to Iraq, I, I, like, I've survived a lot of things. <laughs> I believe I have a guardian angel and, and divine intervention at times. And so um, I think this is one of those moments. So Josh and Gannon, Gannon looks at me and she says, look, just take our money. When you get it done, we'll be here. Nobody says that. Like there's no customer that ever tells you, just take our money. And when you get it to us, it'll be fine. And I thought, okay, I want to work with these people. And so January 1st, I was in the shop working. I had flown back and I went into the shop to work and I went up to the third floor. I flipped the lights on and there it was. And it's on our website. It's on a blog post. It says the vision for fifth and cherry is stunning for 2020, something like that. 
I had never seen a more beautiful board. And we produce a lot of boards. And that by far was so inspiring. I took some pictures and it's the only decision I made without Tanya, where like, like Tanya and I are partners. Like she is, that's not, that's not just empty talk. Like I'm telling you, this business does not exist without Tanya. And uh, I just said, we're doing this. I sent him to her. I said, we're doing this. I said, I don't know what it's going to take to do it. I know it's going to be a lot of work, but we're doing this. A week later, she said, well, how are we going to do it? I said, we're going to just take, take it on scratch paper. I don't care. Let's design a form. Like we had nothing on our website to do this. I said, let's see if it sells. So we were going to the Dallas Market Center and the Atlanta Market Center in consecutive weeks. I said, uh, let's just see if people want this. I said, but this board is beautiful. I literally sent pictures to Costco. I had them print them out. I had eight by tens. I didn't even have a board to show people what it looked like. I was selling this engraved board with personalization based on photos and, and people looking at my phone. And we had never sold as many boards as we did in the month of January as we did with, and every one of them was personalized. I mean, every board. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is the next level for us. Like, this is where we're going. Like, this is going to sustain us forever. And it was that enthusiastic of a response to personalization. And then when they heard it, get, it got refinished for free. It was, it was like, can I get another one? And so it was an amazing thing. And I, I, would, I would stay up to like two or three trying to compile my notes on what these engravings were because I couldn't write them fast enough. And I was having people write them. And we all suck at writing because we're all typing, you know, and no one writes anymore. And Tanya would, she's back in Dallas. And we've got, you know, Remy, I mean, he was two at the time and, and she was pregnant, you know, and she's, she's staying up trying to decipher these so we can get these to our engraver. Because the turnaround time is a little is a little was a little long at that point. I had never been so more exhausted than that point, and uh, I got to tell you. Uh, so I said to her, "If this works, we're going to take all the money, and we're going to invest in a way for people to do this automatically into our website." And so it took ten months. To, so the way you see it on fifthandcherry.com, and it, we'll just keep making it better. It took us ten months to find a solution that would allow people to put their logo, their name, uh, whatever they want on the board and not have, have it be too much, not have it be too little and have it be what they want. And every board, and we launched it nationally in October, October 1st, every board we've sold but one in the month of October has been personalized. Well, Tim, listening to you, I, I loved the boards before, the company before, and now I, I magnified immensely. You're a great guy. Company is great. We encourage our listeners, look at the website, beautiful gifts. The holidays are coming up and really can't, can't tell you enough how much we appreciate you coming on and we wish you so much success with Fifth and Cherry because you definitely okay. deserve it. Uh-huh. You and Tanya. Well, I'm grateful for, I don't know where you guys dropped out of in, in out of space into my life, but I'm really grateful. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. That was terrific. I hope all of our listeners will go to fifthandcherry.com. These boards are incredible. I think you heard from the interview how much we love the boards. I think you will too. Another great gift for the holidays is to go to baseballbbq.com also for wonderful products for the holidays. You can't go wrong with either of those. And now, Jeff, Jim Overmeyer. 
before we begin, you, you want to say something? Yes, he's definitely one of the main figures in the early Negro Leagues. Rube Foster was the, was the founder of the Negro Leagues, but Cumberland Posey was such an important figure as well. You're going to get a lot from this interview. Enjoy it. Jim Obermeyer is a baseball history author specializing in the Negro Leagues. In addition to Queen of the Negro Leagues, he's also he's the author of Black Ball on the, and the Boardwalk, a history of Black Atlantic City Backrock Giants, team of the 1920s, and has contributed to several other publications, including Shades of Glory, History of Black Baseball in America. He's the editor of Black Ball, a scholarly journal of Black baseball history. His newest book is Pun Posey of the Homestead Grays, a biography of Negro League's owner and Hall of Famer. Welcome to Baseball BBQ, Jim Obermeyer. Jim, this was a, a fascinating book. Thanks. For, it was really a, a great read. I thought I knew know very little about the Negro Leagues, you know, just from where Bob Kendrick, where we talked to him and, and looking online, knew that, knew, of course, knew they existed, but Cumberland Posey never knew that he was in two Hall of Fames. Well, he is, and actually his second one took me greatly by surprise because I was working on the book. I'd done most of the baseball and Pittsburgh area research, and I was actually starting to write. I picked up my at that time, I lived about 50 miles from the Basketball Hall of Fame, so they got a lot of coverage in my local paper. I picked up the paper one morning and see that he's been elected to the Basketball Hall, and I hadn't even known he was on the ballot. So I was going to like devote a few pages early on to his basketball, but now he's there are only two people who are in two professional sports Hall of Fames, at least in America, and he's one of them. So now... The basketball chapter, after a very quick, deep dive into early black basketball, the, basket, the basketball chapter is one of the longest ones in the book, probably the most fun to write because I didn't know anything about it when I started. You know, we have had Bob Kendrick on twice, and we've also, we had on an author who wrote a book on Oscar Charleston. And Jeremy Beer. Right. And, and then we also, so we, we try... We definitely have a fascination with baseball history and the Negro League were part of baseball history as the league that, you know, unfortunately kept them out. And we try very hard to, to, to learn as much as we can. So it is an honor to have you on. The book was fascinating because it is true. The, we, know, we know more about the players, you know, the Josh Gibsons, Buck Leonard, um, you know, Satchel Paige, and on and on, Oscar Charleston. But he was such a, well, he was a very good player. He wasn't a great baseball player, right? We, we, let's start with that. He was not a great hitter. No. But he was a fantastic athlete and a fantastic basketball player and a, and a, and a very good football player. He yes. was a very good athlete. All around. And, and it was very interesting to read that chapter on basketball because the game of basketball, and, and even though this is baseball and barbecue, we still are very big sports fans. It was such a different game of basketball then. Oh, yeah. Let's... Tell us a little bit about uh, the beginnings. I know we're breaking the mold here with talking basketball, but tell us a little bit about his uh, beginnings in basketball. He played basketball in high school at Homestead High. He, played, he was a starter uh, in football, baseball, and basketball. And he played baseball amateur and semi-pro from, you know, from his teens. But he also played basketball. And 
he really, you know, as you said, he was he was an okay baseball player. He had a lot of, of speed. He was a good fielder. He was an outfielder, and he batted leadoff and got on base a lot. But he really was he was a pretty run of the mill, upper level run of the mill baseball player. In fact, when he started to remake the Grays in the twenties, from a from a local team into gradually a national powerhouse. He started replacing the local heroes with better known Negro leaguers that he could sign. And one of the people he replaced was himself. He didn't seem to, didn't seem to bother him a bit. But basketball was his personally, a personal best sport. He was very good. He played twice in college. He played for Penn State, where he is acknowledged as their first African-American athlete. He played one year. He left. He appeared to have spent too much time on the court and not enough time in the classroom. You sort of have to read between the lines, but I think he flunked out. Later, when he's about 25, he starts to play for Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> but he's playing under what you might call a thin cover as a, under an assumed name, Charles W. Cumbert. And he's a ringer. This happened a lot in college sports. Yeah. From my reading, it appears to have happened a lot at Duquesne. And the NCAA wasn't much in those days. They didn't have much investigative powers. There wasn't much communication, you know, media communication around the teams. So he played three years as a starting forward for Duquesne. And he was uh, the leading scorer on the team. And they, they acknowledge him. Well, the athletic department acknowledges him as their first African-American player. The registrar's office acknowledges him as one of millions of people who never really attended Duquesne. But now he's 25 years old. Sorry. I was going to say he's 25 years old and he's playing for Duquesne, not registered. That was that was amazing how things back then were so different. And he had yes. a family too, right? He had a family, he had a wife and kids. So I assume he was paid. I mean, I, there's no reason for him to go on there winters for three years in a row and not get paid. In Pittsburgh, elsewhere in Pittsburgh, he's playing for uh, good semi-pro teams and every everybody must have known who he was this was just this is one of these thin covers that everyone in pittsburgh chose to ignore and i seriously doubt if he was the only one in the <laughs> basketball team or in other college sports in that area i've run through in, in early baseball research i've run guys through guys who who played in the minor leagues they played in college, they played in the minor leagues, and they played in the major leagues, which isn't so unusual, except they didn't necessarily do it in that order. They played in the minor leagues, and then they played in college, and then they played in the major leagues. So Posey's, Posey's uh, kind of distinctive that way, but he's certainly not the only one. But he played very well. Yes, let me, uh, let's get back to the Homestead Grays. He was a player through uh, in 1911, and I think in 1916 he became manager and then eventually own it in the, in, the, in the 20s. Take us through that progression. How did he, uh, I mean, he's obviously a very smart businessman, uh, but take us how he went from player to manager to owner. His father was one of the leading black businessmen in Pittsburgh. And you can, I mean, you don't always want to say of somebody, well, I can see his father and I can see his mother and this guy, but in this case, you can't. The old man was a hard-headed, uh, he was a riverboat captain. He built riverboats and 
Cumberland Jr. was just like him in that respect. He played left field for the Homestead Grays when they were an amateur team or a semi-pro team. And they ran into a bit of a problem. Sunday, uh, Sunday baseball was technically illegal in Pennsylvania, but it got played a lot. Uh, and also you were very close to other states that didn't care or didn't have that restriction. But the, the president of the team association and the manager were devout Christians who would not play on Sundays. Well, Sunday is when you made your money because that's when your fans in a five and a half or six day workway, that's when your fans were, could go to the game. So they had a peaceful uh, exchange of ownership and Posey became the field manager and he remained the field manager for the next 30 years or the, the head of the team for the next 30 years. He slowly, he really played the long game. He's known as belligerent, as he was a supreme umpire baiter as a manager. He's known as a hard-headed businessman, but he really, he's a, he was a very patient guy who played the long game. They, would, they, they started out playing semi-pro teams around Pittsburgh, and then he, he made it known they would play anyone, anywhere. They'd get in a couple of touring cars or they'd catch streetcars or local rail and they'd go out in the, uh, what were then the suburbs, it's now part of Pittsburgh. They'd play anybody and they were good and they, and they started to get a following. So then he started to move up. There were always Negro League quality players available. Either they were without a team or since he wasn't in any league. He could make, he could offer the money and sign them away from a team. By the mid-20s, he had guys like Smokey Joe Williams, who was a Hall of Famer, playing for him all the time. He was sort of like assistant, Posey's assistant manager, team captain, however you want to have it. He had John Beckwith, who's a famous uh, Negro League slugger, with him for a couple times over the years. And by the mid-20s, the Grays are... They're going farther and farther afield. They're playing all over Western, or rather Eastern Ohio and West Virginia. And he starts to move up again. Now the the Negro Leagues, due to the Depression, have started to collapse. So he's now citing guys like Oscar Charleston, who's a Hall of Famer, and Judd Wilson, who's a Hall of Famer, because they're they're available. Almost every by 1930, almost everybody's available. Now they're playing whoever they want. Really, they were. They were so popular in the what they call they call the tri-state area, which is Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, and West Virginia. You know, a visiting team usually is entitled ordinarily to about forty percent of the of the gate. The home team gets more because they have to pay the umps, they have to pay for the field or whatever. Posey was making his own deals. He would go and play a top white semi-pro team for seventy-five percent of the gate, and the other team would buy into that because they knew they would have two or three times the people in the seats as they would if the Grays weren't there. Sure. So by 1930-31, they really feel, they really acknowledge to have the best black team and what, what at that particular point was a really sort of dysfunctional due to the Depression broken up Negro League situation. But then, of course, the league started to come together in the mid early to mid-30s, and 
it wasn't long before they started uh, 1937. I believe they started a straight uh, nine straight Negro National League pennants. They're just the best team in the East. There's really no question about it. And he did all of this very, very gradually. He didn't. Well, he got out. He got in over his head. He made. He made maybe the only time he made a really bad major decision. He tried to start his own league in 1932, and it lasted till around the Fourth of July. <laughs> no one could figure out why he took that deep dive in 1932, but he did. But he recovered. He survived. Gray survived, and they became. Yeah, the best team in the East, the best black team in the East. So you mentioned that he won nine straight pennants uh, for Negro Leagues, but he wasn't always in a, a league, per se. He was like more barnstorming or, or just take on all comers. He held the Grays, deliberately held the Grays out of leagues in the 20s because he could schedule all these 75, 25% games in the, in the tri-state area. He could do most anything he wanted. He could also raid the Negro League's rosters for players. You know, he would do it. And he made no bones about it. I'll offer them money. He said, by the way, they're free to go after my players, but they'll never get them because I pay more than anybody else. And I pay on time every two weeks. And he was right about that. But he, he, he deliberately kept the Grays out of league to have advantage of playing exhibition games against league teams, but not having to be bound into a schedule where he could go here and there and make more money. In the late 20s, we, we think of the great stock market crash of 29 as kicking off the Great Depression, but really manufacturing and uh, major parts of the United States business had started to decline by 27 or so. And the Pittsburgh teams, were semi-pro teams, were largely sponsored by businesses, industries, steel mills, uh, things like that. And they started to not have teams. They couldn't afford to subsidize these teams anymore. So in 1929, he hopped into the American National League, which is a one-year, it was actually very well thought out. But again, the timing was the guy, timing was just terrible. He was in the, Ameri the Grays, were in the American National League for a year. The league went bust, and he went back to being independent. People, it's very subjective, but a lot of people think his independent teams of 1930-31 were the best teams he ever had, whether they won pennants or not. There were no pennants to win at the time. And then he liked that, and then he tried his own league in 32, and it went right down the toilet real quick. In 1933, his main rival in Pittsburgh for black baseball control, William Gus Greeley, started the second Negro National League. The first one based in Chicago had gone out of business in 30 or 31, something like that. And Posey got into it, although he and Greeley had lots and lots of, of hassles uh, while they were, you know, they were fighting for over a fairly limited fan base and they were definitely opposing each other so he got into the league and one of the first things he did was sign two players away from another team and he said well they haven't been paid this is from the detroit stars which are in serious trouble didn't finish the season in 33 well the stars aren't paying them so as far as i'm concerned they're mine and the great got kicked out of the league <laughs> so so and there's a train of thought that he didn't really mind all that much because he realized, he, again, he could make more money roaming 
roaming the area, playing wherever he wanted to. But by 35, he's back in good standing. He's in the league. Uh, Greenlee did all the things Posey did, but Greenlee had a great deal of money to his, his disposal and did all of this building up replacement players with major league quality players. He did all that in about two years, but he overextended himself and he started to go broke. So by 38, he's out of, he's out of the baseball business. Posey's now on the unfettered king of black baseball in Pittsburgh. The team is super and away they go. He talked in later years, he was talking to a guy named John Clark, who was a very well-known black journalist in Pittsburgh who had worked as an administrator for Greenlee during those years. And he said to Clark, you know, I always knew I would win this, this battle because Gus never really understand, understood the economics of baseball. Posey was, he was a real egotist. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a, in, a, in a sort of positive way. He made it work in a positive way. But he was like, I always, I always knew I would win. Even though by 1932, he practically had his home repossessed. It was, it was a sheriff's sale advertised in the papers. Apparently, he got his hands on some money and got out of that bind. And, you know, five or six or seven years later, it's all over. And I always do best. I knew I would. Jim, I always enjoy finding the little details in, in the book. Not that this is such a little detail, but in, in history, he was very good friends with Art Rooney, the founder of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Not only was he very good friends, so at that time, it, it had to be a little different that, that you know, he was uh, an African-American person and Art Rooney was not, and they had a very close friendship. And Art Rooney would basically give him money, it seems like, uh, on, you know, more than once, like almost every year, I guess, to help him as a loan. And talk about that, that relationship. Well, they, Rooney was also, a Rooney, I mean, Rooney wound up in football, obviously, but he was also a, pretty, a very good baseball player, uh, you know, local level, semi-pro baseball player, as was Posey at the time. So they had a lot of interaction. They both wound up at Duquesne, where Rooney actually did go to school. <laughs> he was on the football team, but he went to school there. And they formed a real friendship. Posey had some very deep French. He had some good business relationships with white baseball entrepreneurs. But he had, outside of baseball, he had at least two very deep friendships with with white guys in Pittsburgh and Homestead, both of which turned out to be very, very good for him and the other guy too, I guess. Yeah, so he and Rooney, Rooney were, were good friends. Rooney clearly sort of gave him bridge loans every spring you know nothing happened all winter you didn't make any money now you got to take your your team to spring training somewhere and rooney would front him the money to go to hot springs arkansas or someplace like that and take the grays and they would never really talk about it i interviewed his uh, posey's uh, great nephew evan baker who was who hung around the team all the time as a kid and they rooney came over for dinner one lunch one day on a Sunday and Baker, you know, he's pretty inquisitive. He says, so what, so, so you're loaning uh, grandpa some, some money to do this. And, 
And everybody kind of, adults all kind of looked away and, and uh, Rooney said, hey, pass the carrots, would you? You know, that was the end of that conversation. But but clearly, uh, Rooney supported the Greys. He supported, well, he supported the Greys, supported Posey, who ran the Greys. They were great friends. But you got to remember, you know, the NFL has a rule that when our head coach, at least head coach openings, probably other general manager or whatever, there has to be an effort to interview minority candidates. You don't necessarily have to hire them, but you have to show an effort to, that's the Rooney rule. That's called right. the Rooney rule. Our Rooney yeah. made it or got them to make it. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that relationship. Well, it seems like Posey, like you said, he had some wonderful relationships. Even with Greenlee, who he had these baseball arguments with, they still were friends. And it, he, it seemed like he was just a very well-liked person. Posey, I don't know how well, well, it depends. I think the other Negro League owners admired him, but probably detested him because, because of roster rating and trying right. to get his way all the time. He and Greenlee fought bitterly. Clark, you know, Clark was a journalist. Posey was a bit of a journalist, too. He wrote, for years, he wrote a sports column for the Pittsburgh Courier, the leading black weekly in that area or in the nation, one of the leading ones in the nation. And he and Clark would just go at it. They could both write. Uh, Posey's a pretty straightforward, he was no stylist. He had a pretty straightforward style, but he was a good good writer. Clark was a real, he wound up covering the state house in Harrisburg. And he, he had a, a much better journalistic style, but they went at it for four or five years. They just excoriating each other and they were childhood friends. But hey, I'm in business now and you're opposing me. And that was the deal with Greenlee. Clark once wrote later, you know, after Greenlee dropped out of baseball, he ran a restaurant in Pittsburgh. And he said, nobody else in black baseball would ever come to see him. But every time Cumberland Posey was in town, he'd drop around and say hi to Gus. So there was not a friendly relationship. There was certainly a, they respected each other although they fought like cats and dogs when the chips were down, but they respected each other. And you know what? It was nice to see or to, to read that he didn't, at least from, from the book, his father was successful, right? Posey's father was a successful shipbuilder and a believer in education, sent his sisters to college, sent yeah. Posey to college, yeah. and was, was very successful it seemed like he had a, a, a good upbringing as far as, you know, came from a, a wealthy family. He came from a family that was wealthy at the time. The family money vanished by the late 20s. And nobody really knows, well, nobody knows exactly where it went. Somebody spent it, obviously. I went to the, I did a research dive into Pittsburgh and I went to the court records office and I pulled the wills for Posey Sr. By the time he died, his estate was worth practically nothing, and half of that was owed to someone to settle on his last remaining court court dispute, of which he had several. So Posey never, there's an assumption that, that the Grays had family money behind them. There's some writers who even managed to conflate the two guys. Well, Cumberland Posey of the Grays built steamships and was very rich and had a baseball team. No, his father was very rich and somehow lost or spent all his money, and then Cumberland Posey working sort of on a, on a shoe, something a little better than a shoestring, built, built up the grays. 
His mother is very, dropping, dropping back a step, his mother is very involved in all of this. She had been a school teacher before she married Captain Posey. Posey Sr. was always known as Captain because he was a riverboat captain. And in, on the Ohio River, that was a big deal. She was one of the leading education, social, and arts people among the black women in Pittsburgh. She helped found the Aurora Reading Club, which is a reading club for African-American women. 125 years later, it still exists. That's the only, that's about the only thing of the Posey elders that still exists. I mean, the, the businesses are gone, the house is gone, but the reading club lives on. So, so Posey, you know, he became a writer. He became interested in, he became interested in education. I think he got, I don't, you know, the old man was no dummy or anything, clearly not, but he got that from her, I'm pretty sure. So it's just so interesting how they both, the father taught him how to be a no-holds-bar businessman. <laughs> the mother said, you know, go to, co- go to college, although it didn't quite work out. Go to college, be interested in education. Posey was the first African-American elected to the Borough Homestead School Board in 1932. The only reason he stopped being a member of the school board in 1946 is because he died. He was in a job as a position the rest of his life. He had a real interest. He had a real interest in being a hard-headed businessman. He had a real interest in his community. And interestingly enough, he did it, the major part of it, through education. The book is called Come Posey of the Homestead Grays, a biography of the Negro Leagues owner and Hall of Famer by Jim Overmeyer, our guest. Jim, I wanted to ask you, what I learned from the book is he brought his, his team, the Grays, to play at any stadium. He went to Yankee Stadium. He went to Forbes Field. But I didn't understand what the booking or the booker does. Could you explain what that is? A booking oh. agent um, gets you places to play. And in the case of the Negro Leagues, had very small front offices. They really couldn't afford big staffs. I mean, Posey's considered, consisted of himself, his older brother, uh, Seward Posey, and maybe another guy from time to time. So there's limits on, you know, how much you can do. But these booking, the booking agents, well, they would have control of, they'd have control of, of a lot of parks and a lot of, a lot of towns. They would, they would be the ones who arranged the games. Now, this did not imply to major league stadiums or high minor league stadiums. The major leagues and the minor leagues would never work with these guys. They didn't, they didn't need to. But the booking agents would they'd set you up. They'd find you, they'd find you an opponent. They, they might even do the publicity for you, uh, all the things that would cost you money that you really couldn't do yourself. Of course, they would usually take, I mean, it varied, but they'd usually take 10% of the gross gate for their efforts. And that's, you know, the booking agents is a real contentious part of Negro League history. I just told you the good part where they would do these things for you, but they tended to have real monopolies on municipal areas. They'd have, they'd have their, they'd have their hands, their fangs or whatever on all of the parks that weren't major league or minor league or whatever. So you had to do business with them, whether you wanted to or not. It was a big deal that all of them, all the ones who amounted to anything, were white guys. And that got to be, as they started to really control the bookings, there was all of this, why is this money 
going to white guys. We could do this myself. Posey could invent, Posey did his own booking in the tri-state area. Nobody, I mean, he did it or people who worked for him did it. He didn't need booking agents. But when he got out, you know, farther afield, toward Philadelphia and New York City particularly, which was very much controlled by the white agents, he had to deal with them. He didn't like it. Most of the time, he didn't like it. If he, Occasionally, he would he was a big supporter of Eddie Gottlieb, and Gottlieb is mostly known for owning the Philadelphia's the 76ers and the Philadelphia basketball team. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He was a major baseball booking guy in, in Philadelphia in that area, and he had connections in New York, too. He got the, the Negro Leagues into Yankee Stadium, where they made lots of money very successfully. And there, but still, there was a, a, a revolution going on in the league. Let's kick this guy out and take the bookings for some. Well, Posey could Posey could add and he could subtract and he could he could figure that stuff out. He says this guy is making us a lot of money. We want to keep him. A few years later, he got tired of he he got tired of Gottlieb and started to politic to get him out because now Gottlieb wasn't that important to him anymore. So po, Posey's what they. Posey's clearly what you call a race man. You know, he is he is in favor of the advancement of the black race, and he is in a position to do something about it. But if it turns out that a relationship with a prominent white guy will aid him financially and aid his league in being strong and aid his team in being strong, he'll go along with it. He's he's a pro. He's a, he's a race guy, but he's not a race guy. You know, he almost went broke in 1932. I don't think mm-hmm. he ever that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the book is fascinating. Just one or two more questions be, before we wrap up. I want to ask you about the uh, East-West game. I know it was a big all-star game for the Negro Leagues, but his team really was not participating at all. Well, the East-West, the East-West game was founded by Greenlee and two other owners in 1933. That was the first year of the white major league all-star game in Chicago. And they basically said, hey, we could do this too. So they rented Comiskey Park in Chicago and had an East-West game. But Posey, you know, Posey had gotten the Grays ejected from the league in the middle of 1933 and they were still semi-persona non grata in 34. So they weren't necessarily getting to participate all that much. Posey's, Posey's, then his, of course, his response was not to take the slag down, but to start to criticize the game, how, how the, God, isn't it, isn't it amazing? There are three owners involved, two from the National League, uh, three, uh, three, three from the, all from the, one from the West part of the league and two from the East. Isn't it amazing that about two thirds of the players are from those teams? And they were, and he wasn't the only person to pick up on that. And he spent a few years criticizing it until the Grays got strong and the Grays started to get elected by the fans to be on in the East-West games. And then, you know, then it was all right with them. The book is a, a fascinating look into the life of Cumberland Posey. Jim, I have, I have a question for you. I noticed that you were on the committee in 2006 to elect a bunch of Negro leaguers in that one class. Yes. Uh, so, Len, we're talking to actually a, a Hall of Fame committee member here. How difficult was that Was that selection? Well, it was so much fun that it really wasn't very difficult. Okay. We had, we had done this, the, hist- the history project, somewhere in the Baseball Hall of Fame 
library, probably tilting the thing one side, is like an 800-page double-spaced manuscript of our work for any scholar with a whole lot of patience. But it got edited down into Shades of Glory. I mean, edited well. It's, 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 it's a summary of this monster piece of work, but with no footnotes, thank God. So you can actually read it. Um, <laughs> so we did that, you know, and I guess we turned that in in 2004. 2005, we get calls from Jeff Idelson, who was later the president of the hall, but at that time was the vice president for education and outreach, and said, well, we're, we want to elect some black players to the hall. Would you like to be on a committee? Well, there's only one answer to that. Well, sure. Sure. <laughs> and out of the 12 members of the committee, 11, I believe, 11 of us had worked to some extent on that project. And the other one was Ray Doswell, who is and was and is the curator of the Negro League Museum in Kansas City. So there we are. Five of us, uh, including me, got to be on the nominating committee. And we went to Dodger Town, Vero Beach, Florida. It was in November. There was nothing else going on. And we formulated a ballot of I know, 39, I think, possibles. And then everybody got together in Tampa in February 2006, and we voted. And 17, 17 people, uh, four owners, uh, two people, two guys from the 19th century, and 13, uh, how's my math, 11 Negro Leaguers got, the players got elected. Oh, that's, wow. that's fascinating. Yeah, that, that has to be amazing to do. Um, were, were all of the players, all of the people that you were voting on, were they all deceased at the time, or were, were any of them still living? They were not. There were two on the list who were not deceased. One was Buck O'Neill, and the other was uh, Minnie Minoso. Neither of them got in, mm-hmm. and the committee, I don't, I don't take this personally, the committee caught a lot of flack, particularly for not putting in O'Neill, and I think the flack was well-deserved, by the mm-hmm. way. One person who probably gave the <laughs> flack two-time guest Bob Kendrick and right, right. so well probably I'm, I feel very badly it was difficult when we started out the weekend I wasn't so sure I was in favor of O'Neill but the more I got to think about it well we elected Saul White who was a 19th century player and an early 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 20th century manager but he also the thing he also did he was also a writer he wrote in 1908 the first history to that time of black baseball. And I want to tell you, those of us, and I'm one of them, who've done early research would be absolutely screwed today if Sal White had not written that book. I mean, it's just where you start and you go from there. So Sal got in. I mean, he got in in a flash. And now we're at O'Neill. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the, the whole history of the major leagues is not like the history of the, of the Negro Leagues. It's not like the history of the major leagues where it's sort of goes along at a high level. The Negro Leagues were very popular, and then they went out of business at integration, and everybody forgot about them for a few years. And then guys like Robert Peterson with Only the Mall Was White and John Hallway started to interview the survivors and write books, and now it's popular again. And now it's really popular. We're here, aren't we? Well, who helped make it popular? Buck O'Neill. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Ken, the talking, the, ba- the black baseball yeah. talking head on Ken Burns' series and all of that. And I'm saying, so my, I said, if White, if White is a pioneer at the front end 
O'Neill is sort of the pioneer at the back end. Plus, he was a good player and he managed and all of that. It's not like he had no other qualifications. So, yeah, I was happy. I would have been happy to see him get in. And also, I mean, he only spent about three or four years in the Negro Leagues before integration. The voting for the early the early baseball era of the Hall of Fame comes up this December. He he came pretty close to making it last time. I'd like to see him get in for what he did in the Negro Leagues, but more for what he did with the Indians and the White Sox, particularly the White Sox. Absolutely. Tell us where we can uh, anybody can pick up the book. I know you're a member of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. I guess Amazon. Tell us any anything about that. The book the book is published by McFarland and Company, and they have a website. You can buy it there. All of us with the Pandemic Baseball Book Club urge people to buy it through bookshops.org, mm-hmm. which is an online bookseller who donates part of the profits to independent bookstores who have been taking a hit these weeks or these months. And of course, Amazon has it, but I, you noticed I ranked them last. Yeah. <laughs> well, we wish you all the best with the book. It's a fascinating book. Pick it up. Come Posey of the, of the, the Homestead Gray, the biography of the Negro Leagues owner and Hall of Famer. Jim, thank you very much for spending this time with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Jim Obermeyer. Hopefully everybody goes out, buys the book, supports the Pandemic Baseball Club. This was just a jam-packed episode. We thank all our listeners again. We thank our guests. We're looking forward to our next episode, which happens to be our three-year anniversary special. Hope everybody listens. Now, here we go with Baseball Always Brings You Home from Shel Krakowski and Dave Dresser. See ya.